Chapter 6 Voyage and Storm Enigmas seemed to attract enigmas. Viewed from our safe position in the future, the dark was but an instant, a short prelude to the time of ice, and it makes perfect sense that Vervamon should have known about Primata Delphine, who should have known about Tividar Thorn, who should have known the Ragman. In reality, the continent is wide and the years long, and few, if any of these people ever met, regardless of the later legends. One exception to this may be the Joda figure and the mysterious City of Shadows. Numerous individuals and places are credited as being Joda's teacher, but this secretive group surfaces again and again, and there may be some truth to the claims that they were the first to show the Joda, or Jodas, the nature of the third path. Arkal, Argivian Scholar What did you mean when you asked what my color was? said Joda, basking in the sun. The sunlight was a rarity for him, and he could not remember the last time he had felt its warmth. They were miles from shore, and a stiff ocean breeze moved spotted clouds overhead. Inland, it was continually overcast, gray, drizzling, and miserable. Yet on the open ocean, far from the land, there was sunlight. They had ridden for several days to the coast. There, a small village brooded by a tidal mudflat that extended to the southern horizon. Once, Sima had explained, it had been a fishing village, but after the devastation of the brothers, the tide went out and never came back. She knew an innkeeper there, and he provided separate rooms for them. Each night, the innkeeper climbed a narrow staircase to a tower, carrying a lantern with a bit of red glass in the lens, and shone the lantern out across the flats. The first two nights, there was no response in the darkness. On the third night, low on the horizon, there was a responding light, equally red. Before morning, Seaman and Joda were loaded into a wide, broad-bottomed skiff and pulled across the flats. It was slow going, and the eastern sky was already beginning to lighten as they reached their goal. A round-hulled cock at the anchor, its dark gray sails furled against the night breezes. Conversations were short and low-toned. Seema and Joda came aboard. Several bales of some sweet, tangy-scented material were loaded into the skiff from the cock. Then, the skiff pulled away, and the ship raised anchor riding with the tide to deeper water. The captain, a rough-hewn man with an unkept black beard, made the pair welcome. They were welcome to sleep on the quarter deck at the rear of the ship, welcome to leave the crew alone, and welcome not to go below decks or inspect the cargo too closely, otherwise they would be welcome to walk home. Sima agreed to the captain's terms readily and surprising to Joda, even humbly. The blue-clad woman later explained that the captain was as superstitious as all legendary seamen were, but understood something of the magical craft and tolerated spellcasters. That made him a valuable asset to mages such as herself, and she was willing to follow his demands and turn a blind eye to his other activities. The captain's mate was an elven woman who said nothing but regarded both the new passengers with a sneer that made Joda wonder if he had stepped into something before coming abroad. The first days, as they fled on horseback, Joda and Sima said little to each other. So drained they were from the battle, and so worried were they were about recapture. Once they had reached the village by the flats, Sima cautioned Joda against asking too many questions. The innkeeper was an ally, but not a particularly trusted one. Only now, out of the sight of the land, under the first sun he could remember in a year, would she answer Joda's questions. She was dressed in blue again, a dark blue gown slid up along both sides to the hip, with blue leggings beneath. She wore no jewelry, save for a golden comb used to gather her hair back. At the moment, she was leaned back against the railing, 
holding the comb in her hand, letting the breeze tug at her hair so that it looked like a dark banner. You asked me what my color was, said Joda. Does magic have color? Seema shifted her position to regard the young man. What color is the mana when you summon it? Joda shrugged. It's white. Is it? She said, almost smiling. Joda found the smile a bit patronizing, but let it pass. Why wouldn't it be white? He asked. Can you see it? She asked. With your eyes? Well, no, said Joda. But I can imagine it with my mind. And in my mind, it's white. And when I form the lights, those are white as well. You see it in your mind. So can you have color without vision? Said Seema. Joda shifted his position, stretching out his legs. If you feel the color a certain way, I suppose. I don't think I'm making much sense, but yes. Seema gave a knowing nod. You're correct, and it does make sense. You can have color without vision, and it's that type of color that I'm talking about when I'm talking about mana. It was discovered early on that different types of memories unlock different types of mana, different flavors, different colors. Which is why you ask why I thought of when I summoned the, the mana, said Joda. Right, said Seema, leaning forward off of the rail. Those pulling from open countryside, the farms, the fields, even large grasslands, their mana tends to be white. Those who remember the mountains tend to think of their energy as being red. I often see the energies as blue balls, and my members are of my home as well, which is an island community. Those who live within forest have green mana, and those who members are of swamps, fens, and bogs have black mana. Are there only five types of this mana? Seema replied, As far as we have determined, there are five discrete types that are tied to the land. She held up a hand and touched each finger in turn, starting with the thumb. White, blue, black, red, and green. Then back to the thumb. Plains, islands, swamps, mountains, and forest. Joda shook his head. What about a forest with a swamp in it? Or a mountain on an island? Seema responded. We aren't fully sure, but it seems that one particular memory can be used for a number of different types of mana, provided that it has the feeling, the essence of that type. That's what we think, at least. And who is the we that is doing all the thinking? Asked Joda. Seema almost smiled. Almost. Instead, she said, Each color seems to have its own natural affinity, or tendency. Red, for example, tends to be a destructive color. Think of volcanoes and fire and storms. It seems to be chaotic and disorganized, and as such capable of inflicting great amounts of damage very quickly. Vasca, said Joda quietly. From your description, quite likely, said Seema. Destructive from what we could do with fire, and disorganized, since we never really taught you about the true nature of magic. Joda scowled, and Seema quickly added, and probably didn't think much about it himself. There are all manner of hedge wizards and wild talents in the world who have discovered this ability and never go any further than use it to light fires and scare away enemies. Seema paused, but Joda said nothing, so she continued. You, on the other hand, remember the plains, big open territory, usually settled by humans, farms, cities, and fields. Your color, of course, is white, organized, unlike red, and restorative in nature. That's why you can make Mother Dobbs' phony potions work, 
which is how you came to my attention in the first place. Joda looked at the stern, wondering if Mother Dobbs had been freed. He had assumed she had been. Perhaps she had been burned by the church as well. The thought made him very uneasy. Seema continued. Green is the color of nature, and those who imagine this color seem to do well with plants and animals. The connection with the forest seems to be key here. Gardeners with a green thumb may manipulate this color unconsciously. Black is the color of decay and is connected with the balance between life and death. The crazy necromancer, once I freed him of his bonds, whipped up a dozen skeletons. Did you know that? Joda nodded and said, And blue, what is your color? Seema leaned back against the rail. The mind, she said. Thought, creation, emotion, and control. Control? Joda shifted uneasily. What kind of control? Seema looked up over the stern. Watch, she said, standing up and walking to the rear rail. The dark-haired woman pulled her hair back in a tight bun and secured it with her comb. She looked much more severe and matronly as she did so, Joda thought. With her hair down, she seemed only a few years older than Joda, but when she put her hair up again, she appeared older, more formidable, and more unforgiving. Then she leaned on the rail with both hands and half her eyes closed. Joda waited, and nothing happened for a long while. She looked out over the wake of the ship. The ship was reaching, sailing at an angle with the wind, so that the sails caught most of the moving air. The ship's wake formed two long, rounded waves that spread out behind them. Something moved along one of those waves. Joda blinked and missed it. Then another something. Then a third. Small triangular fins appeared along the wake of the ship. Joda opened his mouth to say something, and one of the fins erupted, pulling up from the water, showing a rounded back, and a thin snout shaped like a bottle. Another one of the creatures broke the surface of the water, and then two more. Now they were listening in the wake of the ship, playing and squealing in high, clicking voices as they chased them. Their presence did not go unnoticed. The crew apparently thought those creatures were a good sign, and there were shots from among the rigging and from the swabbing of the deck. The captain and the elven mate came up on the quarter deck, and the captain surveyed the leaping creatures with his glass, smiling and totally ignoring Seema's presence. Joda looked a question at the first mate, and immediately the smile faded, replaced with the same disdainful sneer the elf had before. Dolphins, Landchild. They're dolphins. And then she stomped back to the ladder, to the main deck, shouting orders and obscenities at crewmen as she did so. The display lasted another few minutes, the dolphins launching themselves into the air. They were huge fish, as large as Joda himself, yet they could pull themselves entirely out of the water in a single leap. They crossed each other in the air and splashed one after another, into a single spot. Then, as quickly as they arrived, they were gone. The captain returned to his maps and left Seema and Joda alone. After a few minutes, Seema opened her eyes and wiped the sweat from her brow. You did that? said Joda. Seema nodded, fighting a smile. Yes. You control them? asked Joda. You call them? I, I think, said Seema. That's one of the problems with magic, Joda. We aren't quite sure of everything it could do, and we aren't quite sure how it does what it does. At least not yet. When I was a girl, I watched dolphins play, following in the fishing boats, so I know dolphins well. I don't know if I call them to me, or control their actions, or even cause them into being. 
It's just something that we're still working on. Again, there is a we involved, said Joda. Seema paused, as if thinking of a response. She said, We are unsure of many things. Are creatures summoned by our call, or called into being? Can we create matter, or are we just borrowing from some other location? What happens to the energies we unleash with the spell? Why are some mages better with one type of magic than another? Is there something about our very nature that directs us to one color of magic or another? And what kind of magic does the church use? said Joda. Seema blinked, taken aback by the comment. I cannot believe the church of Tao would ever use magic under any circumstance. They speak of miracles and the will of Tao, but they hate magic with a passion. Joda looked puzzled. Then what did the Pramada use against us? That night in the camp, she called a flaming sword out of nowhere and threw a bolt at me. Isn't that magic? Seema thought for a moment, then shook her head. The church hates magic in all its forms, she said again. The Primata probably had some artifact that allowed her to do that. Any artifact that's powerful enough seems like magic to the uninformed. Joda cocked his head. Artifact? That made sense. Joda remembered the stories from his grandmother. Mishra and Urja were not magicians, but artificers. That made sense. More importantly, it felt right. Joda let out a deep sigh. I'd like to see an artifact that powerful. You already have, said Seema primely. Vaska's mirror. Joda looked surprised, then bent down and fished the mirror out of its holding pocket in his boot. It was cool and smooth. He held it up, and his face, reddened by the sun, looked back at him. Then this is truly magic? he asked. Possibly, said Seema. It was fortuitous that it cast Delphine's miracle back at her and thereby allowed us to escape. And it has an aura about it, almost like a taste. Once you have studied enough magical items, you get a feel for that. But I don't think it is magical in and of itself. I do think it can affect magic, which is one reason we should take a good look at it when we arrive. And where will we be arriving? said Joda sternly. Several times you have talked about we in terms of you and me, and then in terms of you and someone else. Who is this other we that you keep mentioning? You mentioned the City of Shadows as being your home. Is that where we are going? Seema licked her lips. You know how the church feels about magic. All too well, said Joda. Well, as a result, many wizards have formed secret communities to better teach and understand magic. They hide behind their magical wards in concealed or secret places of the world and strive to figure out how to control the forces of mana, she said. Joda thought about Vasca's mentions of such groups when they parted. And you are from one of those groups? Seema nodded. Ours is a very old school of magic. You know the brothers? Everyone knows of the brothers, snorted Joda. Now she was treating him like a child. The founders of our school fought in the Brothers' War, said Seema, with a touch of pride in her voice. That was centuries ago, said Joda. Seema nodded again, sagely, even smugly. Joda hated to reveal his curiosity, but asked, Who did they fight for? Urza or Mishra? Neither, said Seema. They fought against both, and they won. Joda made a rude noise, and Seema cocked an eyebrow at him. Are Urza and Mishra still around, that you know of? Joda had to admit that he had always assumed that they had died in the devastation. 
Our school did survive, said Seema, almost smugly. I would consider that to be winning the war, wouldn't you? Jonah thought about it. He nodded again, slowly, despite himself. Seema continued. Our fathers followed what they called the third path, the one that was neither Urza nor Mishra. The path became what we now know to be magic, real magic. Seema turned to Joda. Our school began in secrecy, hidden from the world. It has grown over the years, but it remains a city of shadows, hiding in many ways from the merciless light of the church. On occasion, members of our group pass into this dark world, looking for old artifacts from the time of the brothers, looking for knowledge of spells now lost, and looking for talented individuals who can cast those spells. Seema paused for a moment, and Joda said, Vaska, you were seeking Vaska to bring him into your group. I, said Seema. We, the mages of the City of Shadows, of our School of the Unseen, are not too proud to realize that we do not know enough about this new force, about magic. So we study, and we collect, and we train. And you want to bring me to your scholars? asked Joda. Yes, said Seema. Me? he said, his eyes narrowing. Or do you merely want Vasca's magical mirror? Joda expected the woman to stammer, perhaps to deny and dissemble, anything to rock herself from the self-important perch. Instead, she turned serious and said, We want both. Capable spellcasters are as important as magical devices, and our school has always sought out powerful artifacts. Joda brightened slightly. You think me a capable spellcaster? I think, she said, stressing the second word, that you have potential. I'll take you to my city and present you a candidate for proper training. I promise you that, which means you have to start treating your magic with more seriousness. Fortunately, we have several weeks before we make landfall, and I can work with you. But you have to let me be honest with you and be able to take criticism. I can do that, said Joda, mildly stung by the idea that he could not take her comments or could not learn from her. Fine, said Seema. Then let's begin. By the end of the first day, Joda was irritated with Seema. By the end of the second day, Joda had passed irritation and was well into full bore infuriation. By the third day, the quarter deck had become a battlefield between the two. Like rival cats trapped in the same closet, they hissed and nipped at each other continually. The captain no longer took his readings on the sun from the quarter deck, and even the elven mate avoided them as they squabbled. Your breathing is all wrong, Seema said sharply. I can only breathe one way, replied Joda irritably. Well, it's wrong, said Seema, with a prim certainty. You're breathing in when summoning the mana to you. That tenses you up. Breathe out when you do it. It doesn't work when I try that way, snarled Joda. Then you're not trying, said Seema. She clenched her fist and she stomped the deck hard, but her face was a stern mask. Urza's blood, cried Joda to the ever blue sky. According to you, you have to do everything in perfect order to cast a spell. You have to be perfectly at ease, but also be completely aware of your surroundings. You have to avoid concentrating, but know exactly what you're doing. Each action should be both natural and precise. Joda, let yourself go loose, and remember to keep your fingers spread slightly apart. And most of all, Joda, remember to breathe differently than you breathe all your life. 
Seema scowled and took a deep and almost theatrical breath, then raised both hands, palms upward. I realize this is difficult. You have to unlearn a lot of bad happens Vasca lets you accumulate. Vasca was a great teacher, Joda was verging on shouting now. I'm sorry, but the idea of putting spells into a mental location, like some type of filing cabinet, was the wrong way to look at it, said Seema hotly, ignoring Joda's growing ire. You will someday find yourself mentally riffling through imaginary bric-a-brac, looking for the correct spell for a situation when you realize you need to understand the nature of magic itself and how you could bend it to your needs. My way works for me, shouted Joda. But this is a better way, shouted Seema back. Not for me. Then you're just beyond hope. The two stared at each other as the deck rose and fell beneath them in a soft, easy rhythm. Both had their jaws and fists clenched and were glaring daggers at each other. Seema closed her eyes and drew a deep breath. Very well, she said finally. Let's not fight about this. Keep track of your spells however you want. It's a personal decision after all. Joda continued to glower. I am not beyond hope. Seema bit her lip, then said, No, you're just frustrating. No, don't bridle. I may be expecting too much too soon. Just listen as I explain the theory behind it, and I'm sure you'll understand why I want you to do it a particular way. Joda grimaced, and envisioned reams of papers and scores of books, piled up in some subterranean library, listing all of Seema's theories of why magic worked the way it did. The concept of five colors seemed fairly sound, but why only five? And how did artifacts fit in? Or holy relics? And the church's miracles? Did they fit in at all? There were tales of steam-driven beasts before the devastation. Were they part of the five colors? Did the five colors truly exist before Urza and Mishra? Were they created as a result of the devastation? Was the light he created by his spells truly little bits of matter? Or was it movement among bits of existing matter? Seaman did not seem to have the answers to any of the important questions to Joda's mind. All she had was ritual and repetition and studies and most of all, theory. She nodded sternly and sagely as Seema expressed the purpose of proper breathing, but inwardly, he had already reduced her voice to be the same level as the squawking gulls and thought it was just as relevant. There had been a time when the pair of them were fleeing the church's encampment on the back of the Primata's white gelding when Joda felt Seema's warm, greyhound thin body pressed against him and thought normal thoughts of one his age regarding young and less than young women. Now, Joda looked back at the musings and shuddered. If they had done something, he knew, they would have to sit around and talk about it. Joda shook his head in disgust. The storms between the two of them, abated for only a moment, began mounting again as Seema droned on. This time, Joda's irritation was mirrored by the sea themselves. Clouds started to pile behind them on the horizon, and the sea had turned a greenish hue, flecked with white caps. The captain made an appearance toward midday. He surveyed the choppy horizon and addressed the pair. It's going to be a bit of a blow, and a nasty one at that, he said, interrupting one of Seema's diatribes. If you need the shelter, come to the helm directly below this deck, where we tend to the rudder. It opens onto the main deck, but it'll provide some protection for you. Seema nodded quickly and waved the mariner off, returning at once to her lecture on interrupting a casting with another, shorter spell. The captain gave Joda a sighing, sympathetic nod, and headed back down to the ladder to the main deck. Joda, for his part, practiced his patience, 
though every jibe from the woman seemed to dig into his flesh. Then came more practice, and with it, more of Seema's comments and sniping, about his pose, about his actions, about his breathing. As the day wore on, the clouds continued to mount, changing from inconsequential balls of lamb's wool to a massive wall stretching along the horizon from one side to the other. Small tongues of lightning were already clear along the dark hem of the storm. The wind picked up, and the cog ran before the storm. The captain bellowed for the crew to throw the mainsail and chip the cross pieces off the mainmast, else the force of the wind would bring it down. Joe's own anger and irritation was rising again with the storm. He had hit the limit when he was asked about removing an enchantment, and Seema corrected him by saying he meant to say that he would, in that case, be removing the power of that enchantment instead. It's the same thing, said Joda hotly. It's not, responded Seema frostily. When you disenchant, you negate the spell itself forever, while when one disempowers, one merely dampens it for a short time, preventing it from accessing its magical energies. But that's probably beyond your abilities at the moment. Joda stared angrily at Seema, wondering if, lost in her world of spell theory, she had any conception of the effect she was having on her would-be student. Finally, he looked down at the deck and said, Maybe this was a mistake. It's a simple mistake, said Seema. You just don't know the difference between disenchanting something and disempowering. No, not that, said Joda angrily. A mistake to think that you could teach me your type of magic in a matter of weeks. Seema's face clouded. Well, if you would just listen and not argue so much. The iron now cut loose again, and Joda was shouting now. Listen, I feel like I know less than when I started. Maybe I am beyond hope. You seem to think me some type of... He clawed his wrecked mental mansion for the right word, and finally settled on... Dunderhead! Dunderhead? Seema spat back, matching Joda's anger. You're probably the most capable student I've seen. You got more natural talent than you know what to do with. If you would just calm down and try to do things the right way, you'll be amazed with what you can do. Joda stared at Seema. Was that finally a compliment? He asked. Seema balled one hand into a fist and slammed it against her thigh. She opened her mouth, but her words were drowned up by the sharp patter of rain slamming onto the deck. Joda looked back, and the black wall of rain was catching up with their ship from astern. The storm had broken. Then, it was upon them, and there was no more time for argument. The ship was swept in a great swell and catapulted forward with the leading edge of the storm. Joda and Seema scrambled to get down the ladder to the relative safety of the helm, little more than a covered porch over the three sides directly beneath the quarter deck. As he scrambled down the ladder, Joda noticed that some of the crew had already tied themselves to their posts with stout cables. The captain was bellowing something, but Joda could not hear. The young man's ears were filled with the sounds of the storm. The ship rocked precipitously, and despite himself, Joda reached out to snack Seema as she stepped off the ladder. She pushed back against him, and the pair of them slammed against the port railing. Then, Seema was up again, clawing for the railing, making for the relative safety of the helm's back wall. There was the sound of tearing cloth, and looking upward, Joda saw one of the sails ripped away by the wind. It took flight, like a large canvas bird tumbling end over end until it was lost in the raging storm. Joda's hair stood on end, and he looked up to see the lights dancing around the remaining mass. There were glowing balls of energy, and idly, Joda wondered if they were made of mana 
or if they were some natural phenomena summoned by the force of the storm. Joda reached the captain, who stood at the tiller, both hands gripping the heavy beam, controlling the ship's rudder. Sima and two other sailors were holding it to the beam's length. Joda shouted and pointed at the balls of light that swooped and bobbed over the deck. The captain gave a wide grin. Good omen, he shouted. Now man the tiller and keep a straight course. If we turn a beam of the storm, we'll be scuttled. Joda grabbed the tiller, replacing Sima. Her gown was drenched now, as were they all, and she moved to one side of the helm, holding tight to the side railing. Joda grunted, and he felt trying to turn the boat by himself as the captain billed orders. The battle to hold the ship to a steady course lasted about 30 minutes, and Joda's arms felt as if they had been strained past human ability. Then there was a visible drop of the wind. He could feel the resistance in the tiller beam slacken against his reddened palms and the pressure lessened in his ears, though the rain continued to lash out at the deck around them. We're going to make it, shouted the captain. Steady now. Joda looked up at the mast, and the glowing spheres were still there, a mated pair orbiting in a dance around the main mast. The surviving sail, farther toward the bow, was holed and torn, and the spheres dodged around the tattered remains. Despite himself, Joda reached into his boot and took out the mirror, Vasca's mirror. If those balls were mana base, perhaps he could use the mirror to attract them and perhaps control them like Sima had done with the dolphins. The rain was a solid ball that bisected the ship, but already, Joda could see that some of the men had unlashed themselves and were now moving on the deck. Then, he realized with a start that the forms moving on the deck were not quite human. They were more slender than the crew, as slender as elves, and had a great crest of hair that swept behind them like manes. And they had no legs, only the bottom cords of dolphins. And they thrashed as they moved forward on the decks. The cries went up simultaneously. There were two sets from different locations. From the deck, there came the cry, Captain, we've been boarded. From the deck below, there came the cry, Captain, we've been holed. The elven first mate let out a cry, Merfolk, and drew a thin blade that was almost as long as her arm. Joda moved the mirror to his other hand and drew his own sword. The first wave of boarders were on top of them, their low cores moving like snakes, and their bodies raised above, armed with clubs and three-branched spears. They were human from the waist up, though totally blue. One of them hissed at Joda and swung a thick, heavy club made of coral. Joda danced away from the blow, then came back with a slash of his own. A ragged, blue-green streak appeared in the center of the mer creature, and it fell away. Joda looked for Sima and saw her along the far railing on the starboard side. The storm had torn a part of the starboard railing away, but she had hooked her leg around a splintered post and was now standing effortless and calmly as the gale tore at her hands and gown. She held up both hands, fist upward, and pushed them forward, flicking her fingers as she did. A wave rose from the rain-drenched deck itself, a wave of blue-green water that spread along the width of the ship and powered itself toward the bow. The merfolk in its path were swept up and carried overboard by the tidal force. Magic, thought Joda, intended the word as a reprimand. He was supposed to be casting spells, but he reached for his sword at the first threat. Part of him wondered if any of his light fountain spells could be useful here, and he cursed himself for not thinking of it sooner. There was a crack of lightning, and the crossbar of the remaining mass crashed to the deck in front of them, bringing down a maze of rigging with it. 
merfolk attackers were already clamoring over the fallen mast, and for the first time, Joda noticed that the ship was riding perilously low in the water, so that its swells were now coming up to the level of the deck. The ship had been boarded. They had been holed. The merfolk attacked from above and below, and now the ship was sinking. Joda stood and meant to stumble over to Sima to ask if she had any spells that could keep them afloat, but as he released his grip from the rail, the ship veered to the port side, and a great swell crashed over the larboard. The wave swept Joda off his feet, and he lost hold of both his sword and the mirror. The deck pitched downward towards Sima, and Joda fell forward out of control. He, his sword, and the mirror were all sliding sideways across the ship's deck. In front of him, the white chumped ocean filled his vision. From the corner of his eye, he saw a flash of blue, and Sima sprang from her position along the splintered port railing. She skidded along the deck through the water, moving with great speed. Magic again, thought Joda, and lunged out to grab her as she passed. But she was not fast enough, and she got too high along the cascading deck. She passed a good foot above Joda's outstretched fingers, and the young man continued to dive along the overturned deck toward the waiting sea. Joda turned his head and had a chance for at least one glimpse of Sima. She almost skated across the deck, reaching down and grabbing something shiny and round and smooth that glittered as she snared it in elegantly long fingers. Then she was gone, colliding with the mass of fallen and torn canvas that had been the forward sail. Joda was gone as well, as the deck finally ended and he shot out over the water. The starboard sign came up and the ship righted itself, but Joda was moving so fast that he was launched into a short arc into downpour. He hit the water hard, his body twisted and unprepared. It knocked the wind from him, and when he drew a breath, salt water coursed down his throat. He broke the surface of the water and sputtered, his hair matted against his face, his wet clothing pulling at him like an anchor. He was trapped in a world of great ocean swells and cold rain. He could see no one else among the choppy white pointed waves. The ship was gone, Seema was gone, everyone was gone, and he was left alone to die. Joda's heart sank as he realized that Sima had not tried to save him. She leapt across the deck to save Bosca's mirror. He was incidental. She acted to save the artifact. A cold hand closed around Joda's heart. Then other hands, beneath the surface, latched firmly into Joda's arms and legs. Joda had a moment to let out a shot of surprise as they pulled him underwater beneath the churning waves. And then, Joda did not think again. <laughs>